Hello, and welcome to Physical Attraction, the show that explains physics one chat up line at a time. Hello and welcome to Physical Attraction. We are the show that explains physics one chat-up line at a time, and today we have a special interview episode. This is the first part of my interview with Dr. Rafael Alves Batista. After gaining his PhD in physics from the University of Hamburg, Rafa came to the UK for a postdoctoral research position in Oxford, which is where we first met. He supervised my master's project and it was a lot of fun working with him. Rafa studies cosmic rays, cosmology, fine-tuning, cosmomagnetic fields, dark matter, astrobiology, and in general, most things astrophysics he'll be able to tell you about. In this first part of our discussion, we talk about cosmic rays. What are they, and what can they tell us about the universe? We also discuss the multiverse theory and the anthropic principle. It was a fun conversation, so I hope you enjoy. Rafa, thanks for joining us on the show. So first off, I wanted to ask a little bit about your background. How did you first get interested in science? And if you wanted to talk about some of your experiences through undergrad and postgrad, that would be really interesting. Okay, so since I was a child, I've always been curious about the universe and everything. And I clearly remember an episode, in I think it was in 2003, maybe 2001, when uh, there was an approximation of the planet Mars. And at that time, I heard about this approximation and I became very curious about astronomy and these kind of things. And uh, I asked my parents to buy me a telescope. And of course, they said no, because it's very expensive. Absolutely. Uh, so I just got a very cheap binocular. I went to my backyard and I did this observation of Mars, which was not something very exciting. You know, it's just a point in the... Uh, I could just see a point in the sky because the binoculars were very bad. Mm-hmm. But... Anyways, this is what actually triggered my interest in science uh, at that time. I've always liked everything, uh, but I didn't know that I liked physics or astronomy. I didn't know exactly what I liked. And uh, after that, I started to read a lot more about astronomy and other related subjects. And I became interested in particle physics uh, around 15, when I was 15 years old. And, of course, naturally after that, I went to the university to, to study physics, and uh, I ended up doing the both things that I like the most, which is astrophysics and particle physics in a field that we call astroparticle physics. It studies uh, small particles in space, that's the way I like to put it. Cosmic rays, neutrinos, uh, gamma rays, every kind of particle that it's not just light, it's not purely astronomy, all kinds of particles that are in space. This includes also dark matter. So I think it would be good to start with the basics. So what is a cosmic ray? So it depends on uh, who you ask this to. So if you ask me what a cosmic ray is, I would say that it's charged particles. It can be atoms that don't have, uh, no longer have electrons around them. Uh, so they are essentially just ions uh, that propagate from their sources to Earth. So the sun produces a lot of atoms, uh, a lot of cosmic rays, and the sun strips these cosmic rays of their electrons. And uh, these atomic nuclei, they are transported from the sun to Earth. Uh, it turns out that these cosmic rays, when they get to Earth, 
because they are charged particles, they interact with the atmosphere, right? And they tend to penetrate the Earth's atmosphere uh, in the North Pole or the South Pole, depending on the charge of the particle, because that's where the magnetic poles of the uh, Earth's magnetic fields, uh, magnetic field is. Okay, so if you ask me, cosmic rays are charged, par- charged particles that come from space to Earth. Okay, and uh, they're sort of responsible for the uh, aurora borealis and so on in the north and the southern hemispheres. Exactly. And that is the uh, effect. We talked about it in an earlier episode that when charged particles are accelerated, so listeners to the show will remember the unusually hot radiation episode, when charged particles are accelerated by electric or magnetic fields, uh, they release radiation. And this radiation, as it applies to cosmic rays, are what cause the, uh, the northern lights and things like this. In the study of cosmic rays, what can they be used for? What can they tell us about the rest of the world that we can't find out by looking at, say, light? Uh, just a quick addition here. Um, actually, cosmic rays, they do emit radiation uh, when, they are, when they are in the presence of electric, electric and magnetic fields. However, the uh, auroras, or the northern and southern lights, they are actually the result of the interaction of the cosmic rays with the air, with the nitrogen in the atmosphere. So there is some kind of uh, excitation and de-excitations of electrons in the atoms in the atmosphere, and those transitions, those electronic transitions, emit light. And this light is actually what causes the color of the, 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 the lights. So it's actually the atmosphere itself that's being excited in, uh, by the cosmic rays and then de-excites spontaneously. Right, I didn't know that. Exactly. So it's a combination of many effects, of course, mm-hmm. but this is what determines the color of the northern or southern lights. Yes, yes. It's all set by the energy levels in the atoms of nitrogen. Exactly. And that's why most of them are green. Uh, most of the, the lights are green. However, we do see sometimes uh, red or some kind more pinkish or purplish. Uh, it depends on uh, which kind of uh, which kind of molecule in the atmosphere is being excited. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I guess they're mostly green because obviously the atmosphere is mostly nitrogen, so it makes sense that that's the predominant uh, excitation lines that you're seeing. Okay, that's good. Good to clarify that. So, um, so in terms of cosmic rays, we've talked about them being charged particles, so they're protons and antiprotons and so on that are coming from outer space, and they hit the atmosphere, they interact, and sometimes they produce a shower of secondary particles. But um, what is it that they can tell us about the universe that we can't find out by looking at, say, light or, or other parts of the electromagnetic spectrum? Okay, so let's start with light. Light, mm-hmm. essentially, when it comes from a star to Earth, it's subject to whatever is in between us and the object that emitted this light. For instance, if we take, a, if we put some kind of dust or a nebula in between a star and Earth, the light from this star can be absorbed by this dust, mm-hmm. and then the dust heats up, and then it emits radiation again. And this kind of process may happen many times, so that we don't effectively see the light emitted by the star, mm-hmm. right? Because there is there is some kind of absorption process due to some stuff in between the source or the star and Earth. So that's a problem for light. Light gets absorbed. Scattered, too. Scattered as well. Light gets absorbed and scattered. Second, we can use other kind of messengers. So let's essentially, when I say other kinds of messenger, let's say light again, but in another frequency. So if you go to gamma rays, for example, gamma rays are essentially just light with very, uh, with a lot of energy. So very high frequency light. Mm-hmm. 
Gamma rays, they can interact, uh, they can, uh, they can propagate in space and they interact depending on what is in between, less with this dust and other things, uh, than the optical light or the infrared light. So gamma rays, they might bring complementary information that normal optical light could not bring in principle. Mm-hmm. The same goes for radio, but in the case of radio, it's uh, longer wavelengths. And for infrared as well, uh, so each wavelength, it has, it brings a specific kind of information that the other wavelength could not bring us. Right. That's the case for light. We can use other messengers. So if we want to study processes that are very energetic happening in objects such as the core of distant galaxies, uh, energetic uh, objects such as neutron stars, for example, or pulsars, we can use other messengers such as cosmic rays, for example. However, we could think of using cosmic rays. However, cosmic rays are not really that good of a messenger in the sense that they don't tell you where the source is. So what you actually see being here, standing here at Earth, you see a lot of cosmic rays coming from different directions. However, as I said, cosmic rays are charged particles and being charged, Mm -hmm. they get deflected by magnetic fields. And because the magnetic fields pervade the whole universe, so there are magnetic fields in the galaxy, there are magnetic fields outside the galaxy, there are magnetic fields in large groups of galaxies, these magnetic fields, they deflect the direction of the cosmic rays that we would originally see. So we cannot actually do astronomy with cosmic rays, or at least at low energies. When I say low energies, is because when we go to higher energies, to what we call ultra-high energy cosmic rays, because their energy is so big, so that's why ultra-high energy, uh, things change a little bit, and their deflection in magnetic fields are not as large as in the case of low-energy cosmic rays. I'll get back to the ultra-high-energy cosmic rays later. But these cosmic rays, they can actually bring us information about the overall distribution of uh, sources in the galaxy. If we look at the spectrum of cosmic rays, there are there is what we call galactic cosmic rays, which is essentially the, uh, the stacked contribution of all kinds of sources that emitted, emitted cosmic rays, uh, across the history of the galaxy and in the whole galaxy. And this is just within our galaxy. They're not coming from other galaxies. So now the important thing is for each energy of cosmic rays, they come from a different place. Mm -hmm. When we talk about very low energy cosmic rays, when I say very low energy cosmic rays, I'm referring to cosmic rays with the energy of the order of 10 to the uh, 9 electron volts, which is 1 giga electron volt. Mm Mm-hmm. That energy is very small, for a par- relatively small for a particle. And these particles, they come mostly from the sun. Mm-hmm. And even uh, things that we call like solar winds, for example, which actually affects our communication systems like satellites. And it shows up in the plot of a lot of sci-fi movies as a big problem sometimes. You know, the solar flares exactly. are interrupting the communications. But it does really happen. It does really happen, yes. Yeah. So we have this uh, solar cycle, which is about 11 years. So... Every 11 years, the amount of cosmic rays released by the sun peaks or it has a dip. Uh, it depends. So, for example, recently we have been uh, in one of these peaks and there was a lot of cosmic rays coming from the sun. And it actually interferes with our communication systems and satellites. 
And it interferes with the climate as well in some ways. It used to be thought that cosmic rays might be responsible for some of the climate change that we'd seen. But since then, we've moved out of that cycle and people have sort of decided that actually the effect they have is quite small. But it's the uh, the influence they can have on cloud formation was an area of research for a while, wasn't it? It still is. Yeah. It still is. Yeah. So cosmic rays, they can actually... Uh interact uh, with the clouds and uh, they might be responsible for lightning, for example, mm -hmm. because we don't know the underlying mechanism behind lightning. No, it's still a mystery, isn't it? It's still a mystery, yeah. Something as simple as lightning. We don't know what's the origin. Mm -hmm. uh, and some people postulate it's cosmic rays. However, I wouldn't go so far as to say that cosmic rays are responsible for climate change. No. I know that some people are actually are effectively working on that at the moment, but I wouldn't go so far as far as to say that. I think that's a very strong uh, argument. Uh, there are some correlations, though. Mm -hmm. You can uh, correlate climate changes with cloud coverage. Uh, so just, you know, the fraction of Earth that it's covered by clouds, and uh, you can correlate that with the flux, so the amount of cosmic rays arriving at Earth at a given time, and you can see that there is a, a relatively strong correlation between these two quantities. We should go back one step and go to the galactic cosmic rays. Yes. So what I call galactic cosmic rays are the cosmic rays that permeate the whole galaxy. It's the combined contribution of all sources, in particular uh, supernova, which are dying stars, accelerated to high energies by dying stars, by supernovae, throughout the history of the galaxy and in the whole galaxy. And these cosmic rays, they have energy slightly higher then the energy of the cosmic rays coming from the sun. So they start, their energy is typically larger than, let's say, 10 to the 11, 10 to the 12 electron volts. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, electron volt is a unit that uh, we always use for people who work in uh, particle physics or astroparticle physics because it's very convenient. So one electron volt is the energy that you need to accelerate one electron over a distance of one meter. So it's fairly a fairly simple definition but mm -hmm. if you go to to very high energies for example we are talking about uh very, when i say very high energies the ultra high energy cosmic rays that we are coming uh, that we'll be back to later they have energies of the order of 10 to the 18 10 to the 20 electron volts mm -hmm. which is essentially the energy that a tennis ball at 120 kilometers per hour has Yes. So we should say a few things in terms of this electron volt scale to uh, to help people to understand. So in terms of scale, a few electron volts is the energy of an individual photon of visible light. So one particle of individual uh, visible light might have an energy of a few electron volts. Then we know from Einstein that E equals mc squared. So the energy that's contained in a certain mass is equivalent to the uh, the mass of the object multiplied by the speed of light squared. And that means that very light particles like uh, electrons, you can express their energies in terms of their mass in units of electron volts. And then you get that the electron is about half a million um, electron volts heavy. So the electron has a, a mass of around half a million electron volts in energy units. And then, as you just said, when you get up to 10 to the 18, 10 to the 19 electron volts, that's when we get into the scale of joules, which is our more familiar unit of energy for uh, objects that are like the ones we interact with in the real world. So, uh, you know, joules are the units that you'd measure kinetic energy of uh, big objects in. They're the sort of, a joule is about the energy it takes to lift an apple by a meter. So that's the sort of uh, scale of energy that we talk about. 
And when you think about the idea of 10 to the 18, 10 to the 19, 10 to the 20 electron volts, all crammed into one tiny subatomic particle, it's crazy really because you're thinking about a, a proton or an electron perhaps that is uh, having energies equivalent to an entire apple being lifted off the floor. So it's quite astonishing energies that uh, these ultra-high-energy cosmic rays can get to. We have cosmic rays coming from the sun, which have energies around 10 to the 9 electron volts, so 10 to the power 9 or 1 giga electron volts. Mm -hmm. We have cosmic rays coming from stars in the galaxy, their overall contribution uh, from dying stars in the galaxy from supernovae, their overall contribution to what we call the energy spectrum of the cosmic rays, which is the amount of cosmic rays arriving per unit area, per unit time. These galactic cosmic rays, they have energies between uh, 10 to the 12 and 10 to the maybe 16 electron volts, and they come from supernovae mostly. And going back to your original question, that was, what do cosmic rays, which kind of information can we get from cosmic rays that light, for example, couldn't bring us? Mm -hmm. Cosmic rays, because they are produced in very energetic processes, so we are talking about dying stars, that's a very energetic process. Mm -hmm. They tell us what is happening with the star when the star dies. Mm -hmm. Which kind of process? So when the star dies, it emits a shock wave that accelerates its material to very high energies. Mm -hmm. And because its material is mostly composed of atoms that are uh, that are uh, stripped of their electrons, so that's essentially ions, which are the cosmic rays, they give a lot of energy to the cosmic rays and they accelerate the cosmic rays and the amount of energy of cosmic rays as well as their nature, meaning their composition, if they are hydrogen or helium or iron ions, the amount of energy and their composition tell us, tells us the process and the nature of this uh, very energetic process in the galaxy, which are the supernovae. So, summarizing this part, supernovae emit uh, cosmic rays, they accelerate cosmic rays to high energies, and they give rise to what we call galactic cosmic rays, which have energies between 10 to the 10 and 10 to the 15 or 10 to the 16, depends who you ask, mm -hmm. electron volts. These cosmic rays, they bring us information additional to light because light just tells us whether the star is, is bright or not now. So when there is a supernova, there is a point in the sky that becomes very bright for a few months and then it just fades out. Mm -hmm. But the cosmic rays, they keep arriving and they keep arriving and they bring us information from the inside of the star. So we can just infer what's going on with the star based on which kind of uh, cosmic ray and the energy of the cosmic ray that we detect on Earth. Mm -hmm. So these, these wandering messengers, they can't tell us too much about the direction that things are coming from, but we can look at them and say, ah, whatever process is going on when the star dies must produce this kind of particle, and this kind of particle has these sort of levels of energy. And so it allows us to apply the laws of physics which we've worked out on Earth and try and figure out how they might apply to these very energetic processes that are happening when stars are being born and dying. Exactly. So I think one of the next things we want to talk about is... Um, what's been called the fine-tuning problem. Basically, one of the things that I've always found astounding about physics is that we sit here on Earth, and our Earth is in a very specific place in the universe, and it's in a very specific time in the universe. And all we really have to go on are looking at light electromagnetic radiation and the cosmic rays that we see from outer space and things of this nature. 
But from that, we've been able to apply the laws of physics and uh, infer all kinds of things about cosmology, which is the history of the origin and the evolution of the universe as a whole. So we can make quite profound statements about how the universe began and what it must be made of just from the things we can see on Earth. But one of the biggest problems that is still outstanding in cosmology, I think, is the so-called fine-tuning problem. So, just briefly, could you explain what this is and why it's such an issue for physicists? It's hard to define the fine-tuning problem, mm -hmm. putting it in simple words. So, the problem with the fine-tuning problem is that there are many definitions for fine-tuning. Mm -hmm. I'll just try to combine them all within a simple definition now. So, a system is fine-tuned if there is a combination of parameters or initial conditions. So, for example, if you just, if you are skiing, depending on where you start in the slope of the hill when you are skiing, that will tell you your final velocity, your final speed. So that's a fine-tuning problem. In order to get, if you see someone at very high speed and you know this person couldn't have any kind of acceleration, this person is just going downhill and this person is going very fast, the slope up there where this person started was very, uh, it was very steep there. Otherwise, the person couldn't get to that speed. So you look at the final conditions and you say, right, there must have been very carefully selected initial conditions so that this skier has managed to get to the speed they've got to, uh, but they've chosen their direction so they won't crash into a tree, and they've chosen their starting position so that they can accelerate to the speeds that they've got to on, say, the black run of a ski slope. Yes, exactly. So it's a problem of looking at the final conditions and asking, what are the initial conditions that would lead to this final result? And why is the final result the way it is? Mm -hmm. as opposed to any other possible outcome. So in, in cosmology, I think what perhaps the popular idea of what the fine-tuning problem is, is that there seem to be lots of different parameters when we look out into the universe, and uh, they seem to be quite finely set in the sense that if things were just a little bit different, um, there might be it wouldn't be possible for life to exist, or it wouldn't be possible for the processes that happen in stars to happen. So an example, I guess, is uh, one thing that people talk about is the ratio between the strength of electromagnetism and the strength of gravity. And uh, the fact is that electromagnetism is much, much, much stronger than gravity. The difference between them is about 10 to the 36, I think, depending on how you measure it. And uh, if gravity were perhaps comparable in strength to electromagnetism, we might not get the things we see in terms of things like chemistry, in terms of things like biology, uh, that would allow life to exist. And so there's this question of what are these parameters that govern the universe and how is it that they seem to be set in such a way that um, it does allow life to exist? And it's as well as a physical problem, I think it's a philosophical problem as well. Uh, yes, I think that's more of a philosophical problem than a physical problem because mm -hmm. some people, they just ignore fine-tunings, saying, okay, we see things the way they are right now, and what's the problem with that? Mm -hmm. Does it make sense to ask what would happen otherwise? Because we know this is a solution of whatever initial conditions happen, uh, whatever happened in the early universe. We know we are here. So does it really make sense to ask these questions? Uh, that's sometimes related to, that's related to what we call the anthropic argument. So mm -hmm. the anthropic argument is essentially the argument, uh, you ask this question, why is the universe such that we can be here knowing that our current physical laws, our current laws of nature 
if we change them just a little bit, if we change, for example, the, uh, as you said, the electron to proton mass ratio and these kind of things, we would not be able to be here today. We know stars wouldn't form. Uh, we know we couldn't have water. We wouldn't, stars wouldn't form. We wouldn't have the solar system and therefore we don't have people. And therefore we couldn't be here asking this question. And why, what some, uh, a version of this anthropic argument is the following. Because we are here to ask this question, therefore, we know that the laws of nature, among all the possibilities that could have happened, we know that things happen just the right way for us to be here. And that's an answer. Mm -hmm. So sometimes the anthropic argument is used as a kind of, um, as a kind of observation. We take our own existence as observers, as human beings, Maybe not as human beings, because we don't know if human beingness actually defines what an observer is. So mm-hmm. I think that uh, that's a very deep philosophical question, and you would have to define many other things first. You would have to define what an observer is. Yes. Do we count as an observer? We, conscious human beings? I would say so. Do ants count as observers? Do fish count as observers? What is really an observer? That also relates to the question. If there is a tree falling in a forest that there is no one there to see, does this tree really fall? So if we, people, conscious beings, are there to see this tree falling, we can state, yes, the tree is falling, or no, the tree did not fall. If there is a fish there, I don't think the fish should be able to make these kind of statements, mm-hmm. considering that the fish doesn't have conscious, or so we think. But what we're saying with the anthropic principle is this idea that, of course, you're going to look around and say, ah, the universe seems built to have me in it, because if it didn't seem built to have you in it, then you wouldn't exist at all. There's a there's a Douglas Adams quote that uh, expresses this sort of quite vaguely, but quite well. He says, uh, he says, imagine a puddle waking up one morning and thinking, this is an interesting world I find myself in, an interesting hole I find myself in. Fits me rather neatly, doesn't it? In fact, it fits me staggeringly well. It must have been made to have me in it. And this is the sort of idea of the anthropic principle as in the only worlds that any observers will ever look and see will be suited to those observers because there's no way that an observer could look and see a world and say, oh, I can't exist in this world. That's just not how it works. And so in some ways it seems a little bit circular, but in other ways, I guess maybe it might give you some philosophical comfort towards the other possible implications of looking around and seeing a world that seems quite suited to have you in it. Uh, Yes, and... That relates to another thing that people uh, have been working on for some time is, uh, for example, if we take inflation, for mm-hmm. instance, inflation is the rapid period of expansion that the universe underwent right after the Big Bang. So mm-hmm. before the universe was a trillionth of a trillionth of a trillionth <laughs> of a hundredth of a second, there was this very fast period of expansion uh, when the universe just grew exponentially. So it grew many, many orders of magnitude uh, mm-hmm. within just a tiny amount of time. That's what we call inflation. Mm-hmm. Inflation is essentially the process that rolls, uh, that essentially, you know, it's just the coin tossing process for some of the physics that we have today. Because inflation provides the initial conditions for many of the things that we observe today. So if inflation is just the coin tossing process, Inflation actually determines all the outcomes, but inflation could have been different. And there mm-hmm. are many other possible outcomes. How do we put a measure in these outcomes? 
when we have, for example, a box, we started drawing, let's suppose we have a box with uh, balls, red, green, and blue. Mm-hmm. If we start drawing red balls or green balls from there and we never draw a blue ball, we start questioning, hmm, why is that that we never draw a blue ball from this box? Mm-hmm. There is some kind of initial condition process. Why, for example, the box might be in such a way that all the blue balls are in the uh, bottom layer of the box. So yeah, that, we can't reach them. You know, you, can, you can't reach them, exactly. Uh, so that's one uh, kind of initial condition problem. That explains why we don't get the blue balls when we want to get them. Mm-hmm. Uh, and inflation is essentially the, the same process. Inflation determines, determines the initial conditions of uh, the universe and their outcomes. But we want to put a measure. If we never get a blue ball, how can we be sure? If you know that there are three balls, green, red, and blue, you can say, well, I got a red one. There was a one-third probability that I would get a red one, right? And if you draw many balls and there is never a blue, you start to question whether there is really a blue ball there. So correct me if I'm wrong. What we're trying to do is sort of understand the process of inflation and how it works and how it's led to the initial conditions that have... Uh, allowed our universe to exist and we want to find some way of understanding the uh, the mathematics and the physics behind inflation so that we can finally say actually some outcomes are more likely than others and maybe it turns out that universes that look like ours are much more likely than universes that look like you know some sort of different system where the ratios of all these numbers are off and uh, life and chemistry as we know it can't exist is that the sort of fine-tuning investigation that they're doing into inflation? Yes, this is a kind of fine-tuning investigation in, in inflation. Mm-hmm. Uh, but going back to the to the uh, balls and box analogy, mm-hmm. so we need to know that there are three colors of balls. If we just get two colors of balls, we cannot have a proper measure to calculate probabilities. So in order to ask the question, what's the probability that we find ourselves here as observers among all possible outcomes of the initial conditions in the universe? What's the probability? How small? is our parameter space for us to find ourselves here right now. And in order to do that, we need to have a measure, to put a measure on the initial conditions. But we don't have that. There is no way to put a measure because, you know, we cannot go there. There is no way of putting a measure there. And therefore, from my perspective, it's hard to answer this question when you cannot put a measure, uh, whereby this question I'm referring to the question, uh, why are we here? Why do we find ourselves here in this particular outcome? I see what you mean. So you're saying we don't even really know what the range of possible outcomes is. And so it's almost impossible to say, yes, it's very likely that we ended up in a universe like this, or no, it's not likely that we ended up in a universe like this, and we're in some way lucky, because we just don't know what the full range of possible universes are. Exactly, uh, yes. And uh, that's why some people have been recently postulating the existence of uh, a multiverse of universes, whereby Mm -hmm. multiverse I'm referring to a collection of many universes and uh, some of these universes, they may have different physical laws. So the initial conditions, so the to- uh, uh, coin tossing process by inflation in the beginning of the universe would generate different outcomes. And if you average over all these many universes that compose the multiverse, mm-hmm. then you can actually have a measure because that's your box. You have opened your box. You know everything that it's inside. You know how many of each ball you had. Yes. But at the moment, we're just looking from the perspective. We're like one ball trying to figure out what all the other balls look like. 
Exactly. Mm-hmm. And that's when physics meets metaphysics because, okay, we can say that it's fair from the mathematical point of view to assume, to postulate uh, a multiverse of universes, each with their different phys- set of physical uh, laws, uh, different uh, initial, co- different realizations of the same initial conditions, these kind of things. Mm-hmm. However, it's fair to ask that question, but if we cannot test it, yes, is that absolutely. really physics? Yeah, I've always, that's what I've always found to be the absolutely fascinating question. And it, it moves more into the philosophy of science, I guess, because there are people like uh, like Karl Popper who will talk about falsifiability being a necessary part of science. And so I guess the idea there is that if you have a hypothesis, if you have an idea, but there's no way of proving whether it's correct or incorrect through experiment or observation or otherwise, then it doesn't really fall into the realms of science. And I guess there's a fear with multiverse theory that you know, physicists and theoretical physicists and mathematicians can, they can draw up equations and they can draw up equations that are consistent and that produce uh, features of the universe around us when you solve them. But in some ways, if they can't test which of these theories is correct, it's difficult to say that it's actually physics and not just sort of abstract mathematics. So I guess what I'd like to ask is, is there any multiverse theory that allows us to see evidence that it exists you know any i mean i'm not talking about ways of getting through to another universe but uh, are there any multiverse theories out there where we can observe or infer that other universes might exist yes okay there is actually a classification of multiverses so in principle you can say okay the big bang happened and there is what we call nowadays the Hubble horizon or the observable universe, mm-hmm. which is essentially the maximum distance that we can observe. We cannot observe anything beyond that. However, you know, there might, the universe might keep going after that. So mm-hmm. that's a kind of multiverse. There is another kind of multiverse in which these inflation processes, it occurs, uh, many times mm-hmm. and, uh, producing different universes that sometimes they might touch each other. When they touch each other, they leave some kind of imprint in the distribution of uh, of the cosmic microwave background, mm-hmm. or so some people claim. <laughs> there are many problems with this argument. Hmm. This only works for a very particular set uh, of a very particular definition of multiverse. You need to have the right kind of multiverse. You need to find yourself in one of the multiverses that have cosmic microwave background, which is probably uh, most of them if you assume that there is a similar kind of uh, physical laws. Mm-hmm. However, you don't know how the physical laws are in those universes. Uh, but the main problem with that is that you are trying to test, you are trying to falsify a multiverse theory. But... You know, if you observe some kind of anomaly in the distribution of the cosmic microwave background, and maybe I should go one step back and say that the cosmic microwave background is the relic of the Big Bang. So it's mm-hmm. the radiation left uh, by the Big Bang. Mm-hmm. So there were lots of photons and there were lots of uh, electrons and they were all free particles and they were kind of scattering off each other constantly. And they were all in thermal equilibrium because it's like uh, when you have gas molecules in a box exchanging energy with each other, um, they all end up having, you know, the same distribution of energy because they're constantly interacting. And then at some point, the universe expanded and light stopped interacting with matter in the same way. That's kind of what happened. And the light that was left behind from that era is this relic radiation. 
And since then, the universe has cooled down a lot, it's expanded, and the wavelength of that light has expanded, and now it's in the sort of microwave sector. So throughout the entire universe, there's this background radiation that comes from a much, much earlier era of the universe. And physicists love to probe it because it's got lots of information about what the uh, distribution of stuff was. So it's a bit lumpy in some parts, and that indicates that way back when it was formed, there was a little bit more matter over here, a little bit less over here, that kind of thing. But you're saying that there could be, if there was evidence for a multiverse, it might show up in this, uh, in this touching of universes that might leave some sort of imprint on the cosmic microwave background. Yes. The problem with that argument is the following. Mm -hmm. If you see an anomaly in the distribution of the cosmic microwave background, mm -hmm. these might have tons of possible explanations. You don't know which explanation is the right one, and there is no way to falsify the multiverse uh, explanation in this case. I see, right. I remember they thought they'd found gravitational waves by looking at the cosmic microwave background a few years ago, but it turned out it was just dust, because there's all kinds of things that can affect this... Uh, microwave background and it, it worked out that actually what they'd seen was an evidence that it had been scattered by dust and not gravitational waves after all. Yes, exactly. So there was some kind of, uh, the dust in our own galaxy was uh, ill-modeled mm -hmm. uh, when they did the calculation uh, and there was actually more dust than they considered and their, their signature, their gravitational wave result mm -hmm. was actually the dust in our own galaxy as opposed to the uh, primordial gravitational waves that were that was left from the Big Bang. Yeah, like finding a smudge on your lens and mistaking it for a new planet, right? Yes, yeah. <laughs> perfect example. So, yeah. it's, uh, so I, I mean, in some ways, you can't blame these people too much because it's very tricky. I guess we're sort of biased towards looking for multiverse theories that might be observable in our world because if you come up with a theory and say oh but there's no way to prove this is right then you know no nobel prize for you right <laughs> yeah but the multiverse uh, the observation of gravitational waves doesn't necessarily relate to the multiverse no 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 i'm just using it as an example to say that you know lots of things can leave their fingerprints on this cosmic microwave background and we yes, don't necessarily right. know if it's uh, evidence of a multiverse or evidence of something else going on yes that's right So that's the end of the first part of my conversation with Dr. Alves Batista. If you're interested and want to find out more, visit his website at www.8rafael.com. That's www.8rafael.com. Or follow him on Twitter at 8rafael. He's appeared on several other shows, and you can find out more about his research publications there as well. We'll be airing the second part in a few weeks. Now for the housekeeping. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter at PhysicsPod. Visit the website at www.physicspodcast.com where you can leave reviews, comments, or listener questions for our upcoming much-promised listener questions episode. If you tell just one other person about the show, in a few dozen shows I will have trillions of listeners. My wealth and power will know no bounds, and I will be able to reward you mightily for being loyal subject- I mean listeners. Listeners. Until next time, be kind to each other. Funny? <laughs>